Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito. I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Alvian Butters, a scholar of the history of religion specializing in Tibetan Buddhism. He's the editor of Studia Orientalia Electronica, as well as an editor for the Kiense Vision Project, translating and archiving the works of 19th century Tibetan scholar Kiense Wangpo. He is currently working on yet another project as an Academy of Finland Research Fellow at the University of Turku. Dr. Butters has kindly joined us today to discuss his journal, Studia Orientalia Electronica, as well as his deep and varied academic, theological, and professional expertise. So thanks very much, Albion, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you first introduce listeners who may be unfamiliar with Studia Orientalia and Studia Orientalia Electronica? Sure. Uh, the story begins more than 100 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. in 1917. So the year that Finland got its independence, the journal Studi Orientalia was initiated by the Finnish Oriental Society, or the Swoman Ittamain and Seora. At that time, Oriental was an accepted term, mm. and it had different remits, uh, one being to popularize and raise awareness of things Eastern amongst uh, the population of Finland more generally, but also academically publishing scientific articles, uh, monographs, festschrifts for decades and decades. And it's really an amazing history. If anyone wants to read about it in Finnish, Professor Klaus Kartunen has written a book called Vosi Sata, Asia ja Afrika, about the history of Studia Orientalia. But to bring us up to the modern day and the electronic version of the journal, um, it was in 2013 that the editor of Studio Orientalia, Dr. Lotta Aunio at the University of Helsinki, she's a university lecturer of Bantu languages, decided to create an online version of articles and leave the Studio Orientalia hard copy imprint for monographs and longer volumes. So that decision was made and slowly it grew until 2017 when she invited me to become the editor of Studio Orientalia Electronica while she maintained the position of editor of Studio Orientalia. I can speak a little bit about the difference between the two more than that in the sense that They're both open access in the sense that archives of Studio Orientalia are posted online and uh, available, so that's nice, but they go to libraries around the world, and you know, it, it fills a more traditional model of publication, whereas the electronic version is growing more in the digital space. Um, Two years ago, we got into the directory of open access journals, DOAJ. That was a nice, a, a nice accomplishment because it opened our international readership up even more. Yeah. Well, speaking about international readership and, of course, open access is always great for scholars everywhere. Uh, well, can you clarify? So Studia Orientalia Electronica, 
of course, based in Finland and you're the editor, but the articles are all or predominantly in English. Is that right? That's correct. Nowadays, they really are. Studio Orientalia decades ago saw a lot of articles in German as well as Finnish. But nowadays, yeah, Electronica really mostly publishes in English and it has a very wide scope of interest mm -hmm. ranging from the Far East to the subaltern India, Tibet, then to the Middle East. And then because of Lotta's personal interest, also including African studies. Okay, yeah, that's a really broad scope. What do you see as the advantages of having such a wide scope? Um, well, I think really more than anything else is the ability of the journal to support scholars uh, mm -hmm. in their areas of interest. And the readership has proven to be engaged in those different areas. And our editorial board has experts from different universities, Finnish universities, with expertise in those different disciplines. So I think we're really able to get the peer reviewers necessary for the rigorous scientific publication across that range. So, yeah. Okay. So you partly answered what I was going to ask next, which was, well, coming from a place of amazement that you could handle being an editor of such a wide ranging uh, journal, because I, I imagine that it's very difficult. I, I was looking through some of your past uh, publications and there's is it the most recent was about verbal morphologies? There was something about the Tatars, the ethnic religious minority in the Baltic region. But then there was also, um, this was not part of a special issue, but an article on modern Tibetan literature. And the I can just imagine how difficult it is to oversee editing a journal that um, incorporates such a wide range uh, in disciplines and fields and methodologies. It can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to find peer reviewers that are qualified, but also able to do it, especially during the COVID pandemic. Reviewers have become busier than ever. And at the same time, our submissions have doubled as scholars are at home. But I would also add that it's really a team effort. We have different people able to advise on who the peer reviewers could be. And I'm joined in editing by Lotta and by Lusara uh, Nieminen, who's focusing on layout and really the detail-oriented aspect. So it's in that way that it really has, I think, come to grow and achieve more and more success. Can you repeat that? Did you say that the submissions have doubled since the At pandemic? least. At least. It's okay. been a flood. It's wow. <laughs> truthfully, it's a bit overwhelming. And, mm -hmm. and it, so it's a curse that you don't mind having because it shows that you're doing something right, I guess. But it's also made us more rigorous in our review process. Right. Of course. Uh, as we mentioned, the articles are written in English. Are the submissions, just out of curiosity, are they from mostly Finnish based scholars and students? No. No, okay. no, no. They were in the past more, but I think with the DOAJ, it's becoming more and more international. Right. And another thing that is amazing to me, always surprising to me, is that we have submissions from experts in the field, from professors emeritus, and then also PhD students, the entire range. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Have you noticed uh, any other developments or changes just in the time that well, so you've been editing, uh, I believe, is it four, five or six years, uh, the journal? Have you noticed going on any? Five, five years now, you're going on six. Okay. Have you noticed any, well, of course, aside from this flood of uh, submissions in the last couple of years, I'm again, um, 
so fascinated by how large the scope is. I'm just wondering if you've noticed any trends or any differences in what kinds of papers you are being submitted or you, that are being submitted to you? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. We do get a lot of different kinds and, and they fall in different categories. Some are very linguistically oriented, some are area studies, some are methodological in focus. So I would say that perhaps there's more of a push of submissions from India and Sanskrit studies in the last year or so, which is rewarding to me personally, because it relates to my own personal background and my own study of Sanskrit. And at the same time, it goes back to the core of, I think, what Studio Orientalia has been able to provide internationally in terms of the strength of the Finnish academic community being very, very learned in Sanskrit, being able to share that uh, globally. So to continue that tradition feels like a a very wonderful thing. And uh, I can speak briefly to that. Something that we're working on right now is finishing up the last of a series of conference proceedings from the 12th Annual World Sanskrit Conference that was held in Helsinki all the way back in 2003. So ancient history, <laughs> ancient history, but it was a very large conference, a very prestigious conference. And through the previous work of Professor Oscar Parpolo, who's now emeritus, and Petra Koskinkolio, editors of the series, they were publishing different aspects of the conference papers through the Indian publisher Multilo Banarsidas. And that, you know, was continuing along until suddenly it looked like it was no longer going to be possible. And that was at which point I I invited the series to be finished with Studio Orientalia. So last year, we published the penultimate volume on the Puranas and Agamas and Tantras presented at the conference. And then the last one should be published late this year or early next year on poetry. So better late than never. So this is over 12 volumes in total for the... That's right, over over a dozen volumes, yeah. Right. I was, of course, just um, joking about 2003 being ancient history. It feels like just like yesterday to me. But speaking of history, I did want to go back a little bit because I would love to learn more about the century-plus history of Studia Orientalia. And, and you already mentioned that there is a book, um, unfortunately for me, written in Finnish. If I remember, then it's something like 100 years of Asia and Africa. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. In, in Finnish. And again, for me, it's unfortunate that I, I can't read it. But on the site for Studia Orientalia, it mentions that it was the day after the Declaration of Finnish Independence from Russia on December 6, 1917. So the day after some scholars met to discuss establishing this Oriental Research Club. And I was so fascinated at, of course, how quickly this happened. And it makes me wonder if it's a counterpart to a similar Russian society, or is it an initiative that's somehow in defiance against the previous Russian rule? But I know that, of course, this is um, not your area of expertise. So hopefully one day I'll learn enough Finnish and read about that. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. But I should add there are photos in the book and it shows historical, uh, you know, aspects of it, copies of it, stuff like that. Just from that side, it's interesting as well. Uh, Yeah, sure. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned the photos. I can look at the photos. (laughs) So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be editor of Studio Orientalia Electronica? Uh, sure. Um, it was before 2017, a few years before, and I 
co-edited a Festschrift to Klaus Kortenen with Bertil Tikkanen. It was one of the volumes published in Studio Orientalia. So I think it was through doing language revision and working on that that Lotte had me in mind mm -hmm. for taking on the electronic version. But maybe it goes back also to the fact that I was at the 2003 conference in Helsinki and I presented and I had met some of the scholars of Sanskrit then. So it felt a natural thing to join that community, even if these days it's not so much physically based in an, in an actual department, but more around a journal. But going back before that, I guess I should say that I did have an academic background in Sanskrit and Tibetan. I originally was inspired to study Tibetan Buddhism when I met different Tibetan lamas in California in the late 80s. And that gave me a taste, so to speak, of the Dharma. And I applied to Harvard Divinity School and got in there and really was able to begin studying Buddhism on an academic level, both languages, classical Tibetan language and Sanskrit, but also uh, Buddhism itself with amazing professors like Michael Aris and Masatoshi Nagatomi. And that led to, uh, after graduating with my master's, a trip to India to really see Buddhism on the ground and what was it outside of the books. And then that led to a few years living at a Dharma community in California, studying mm -hmm. with one of the lamas that I had met years before. And then that led to me uh, being accepted at Columbia to do my dissertation under Robert Thurman, who is an amazing scholar. And I couldn't recommend more highly in terms of anybody interested in Buddhism because of his revolutionary way of making it accessible to the Western readers. And so it was really there at Columbia that I saw a, how would you say, a nexus point between my own personal love and interest and appreciation of Buddhism as a path, but also the scholarly tradition that it's part of, not just in the West, but dating all the way back to India and mm. through Tibet. So yeah, it, it was actually perhaps because I had been studying Buddhism directly that I was accepted because, well, Robert Thurman himself was the first Westerner to become an ordained monk uh, in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. So uh, studying with him in the 60s. So mm. that combination, I think, was something that he appreciated. And it's, uh, I think, an important one to understand and to bring certain aspects of Buddhism to students, to teach it in a way as an insider. Mm -hmm. And even though there may be critiques in academia about being too much of an insider, certainly people have levied those criticisms against different Tibetan scholars. Um, it's important to note perhaps that in Buddhism itself, in Tibet, particularly Buddhists don't describe themselves as Buddhists. They describe themselves as insiders. They mm. describe themselves as nongpa, as within, mm. within Buddhism. So I feel like that's an important tradition to uphold as well. Right. You studied with Robert Thurman, who, of course, has written widely, not just for academic audiences, but in a way that's accessible to the public at large which has been tremendous. And uh, you mentioned before that he established or founded the Tibet House US, is that right? With, That's right. 
Right. So he's he's done a lot of work, uh, not just to deepen understanding of Tibetan Buddhism, but to also allow for more people to um, access its teachings. So I wanted to go back a little bit. You you did mention um, maybe a sort of tension between academics and I'm not sure if I'm using the term correctly, but religious practitioners or people who are studying Buddhism spiritually versus those who may be uh, approaching it from an academic, a more academic perspective. And of course, many like yourself do both. Uh, Do you find in yourself any sort of need to reconcile those two aspects or do you find them to work fairly seamlessly? Great question. Well, I think Buddhism is a bit of a special case. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the study of religion as a discipline over the last decades, there has been an increasing move, I would say, towards more scientific thought and critical thought, asking what is religion, deconstructing it, trying to understand if there even is such a thing as religion, what makes it up. So for then someone to come along and say that it's important to be religious in order to teach it properly goes a bit against the grain, you know, right? So there are different strands of the study of religion. Myself, I take my degree is in history of religion, which kind of is a nice uh, escape out of that debate because history is history. But in terms of my own feeling that it's important to have an understanding from the inside, it's based on a couple of things. And one is that Buddhism deals with the truth, right? And so (laughs) because illusion is fundamentally tricky and truth is pretty hard to actually get at, Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of nuances that need to be understood along the way. So receiving teachings from somebody within their tradition is, is really important and also trying to inculcate an understanding of what the different states of mind might be, you know, talked about in a text, et cetera. I can't say that I've achieved those, but it doesn't hurt to try to understand them, right? At a deeper level than just reading in a book. So the second thing is that Buddhism can be very, uh, full of ritual and folk religion type elements. And at the same time, it can be very, very scientific. And one sees this, for example, in the emphasis of the current Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso. He really tries to have a critical approach toward the teachings, the tradition that he upholds and really loves, saying that if there's something that doesn't fit, then, well, that has to go. So he has entered into dialogue with Western scientists, for example, a number of different conferences, and and they've had both theoretical discussions, but also very practical discussions about, for example, meditation and cognitive science, brainwave studies. Um, One could focus, for example, on the work done by Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. This is for decades now. And then not just the Dalai Lama, but different practitioners have gone and, you know, been hooked up to electrodes and scientifically mm. measured. And so, you know, there, there's a very, very, how would you say, analytical aspect of Buddhism that lends itself to personal examination without going as far as just 
buying into something theologically speaking. I see. So at least an attempt, a personal but objective observation, or I'm not sure if objective is such a good word to use here. Well, but it is. I- it is because what's the crux between objective and subjective? At a certain point, the I falls away. That's the whole point of Buddhism is get beyond the ego and the perception of yourself as separate from what the rest of everything out there. Hmm. Uh, we spoke before this recording, so uh, I'm sorry if you mentioned this then or now, but you had said something about uh, suspicion of academics being ego-driven, that some religious practitioners have this suspicion. And I'm not sure if you have personally been told this <laughs> to your face, well, but what, what do you make of such accusations? I think that there is a basis for academics being egotistical and and opinionated and stubborn and (laughs) not always uh, nice in their (laughs) argumentation, right? I think that's not a matter of debate. Um, So for Buddhist teachers to look at somebody who's studying the tradition and writing a book and how many, you know, what's the UFO rating and, uh, you know, how many copies are going to get disseminated and how many, you know, quotes or, you know, citations, you know, they have a point, right? That's not what Buddhism is about. On the other hand, I think that there is a responsibility to work within the academic frame and not just give it up and go sit in a cave, right? After you get your PhD. And I mean, I, <laughs> I, I have to I have to confess that I did that for a bit because I, you know, I finished my translation of the 14th century Tibetan work, the Drup Dazud, and, and I offered it to the teacher and he looked at it and, you know, he appreciated it. And at the same time, he said, hey, you could have just, you know, brought me a nice bottle of wine as an offering. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, don't get hung up. You think that you did something really, really big here. So, you know, hey, let's deconstruct that a little bit. So I took that not in a bad way, actually, but it deconstructed pretty strongly for me. And I thought, OK, well, why do I need to play this academic game? And, you know. My advisor, he said, boy, you think being a graduate student is tough? Try working in a religion department. And he was right. It's not easy. So I cooled my heels for a while on academia and took a break. But now I'm back. Now you're back. And I was just thinking that, you know, of course, there is a lot of ego. And and I don't mean just that people are narcissistic or academics, but there is something about studying objects as a scholar that puts a lot of emphasis on the mind of the self that's working to somehow excavate and extricate um, ideas and truths. But at the same time, I was just thinking that one of the great things that can happen is that you, as an academic, can teach younger scholars, uh, such as you have yourself at the University of Turku and elsewhere, right? You have been, you have, not now, but you have in the past taught here. That's right. And that's really, really exciting. I mean, to feel the sense of aliveness and the relevance. I mean, why did I choose this field? To me, it it doesn't matter that it's from the 14th century, the work that I translated, it the technology is as relevant as ever. And can you say a little bit about your experiences teaching? I'm just curious because I also am at the University of Peru. Well, I find the students to be fun and uh, cool, uh, oh. <laughs> you know, in, in a way that it's like they're happy to slide into a conversation without it being necessarily a formal thing. And mm-hmm. that 
organic type of dialogue leads to, I think, a less hierarchical and more mm. profitable type of relationship mm. pedagogically. So it's been satisfying. And, and I really look forward to teaching at the university there more. I'm so pleased to hear your opinion of the students, and I'm sure the university would too. What were these courses that you taught? Well, I taught a traditional history of uh, Buddhism, focusing, for example, one on India and Tibet historically. Mm -hmm. Then I uh, focused on a more general Asian context, looking also at Japan and China, Mongolia. Um, I have a special appreciation for Mongolian history and, and that aspect. So that was really fun to share. And then uh, this was when Professor Veiko Antonen was chair of the department there that he asked, well, why don't you teach something that bridges the gap from the historical to the contemporary and see what the lived Buddhism is today? Mm. So I did a course on that. And that for example, included a field trip to a Vietnamese monastery outside of Turku, and they had an exhibition of the Buddha's relics, uh, and not just mm. the Buddha's relics, but we're talking bones and hair, like relics from masters, uh, Indian and Tibetan, mostly Tibetan, probably spanning centuries. And that was, you know, really oh. an incredible thing to do, because then you're bringing the students into direct contact with something that's very real for the practitioners, but it's also in this day and age, but it's also historically linked. Yeah, that, that must have been a really terrific experience for the students. This makes me wonder, um, I'm sure that compared to some place like California and elsewhere, that there will be fewer Dharma centers and elsewhere where you could study Buddhism here, Tibetan Buddhism especially. What kind of access do people here have? There are Dharma centers and teachers in Finland. There have been uh, some amazing teachers visit. The Dalai Lama visited some years back and filled up, uh, you know, an entire auditorium, uh, of, sure. as one might expect. And then in a much smaller venue, you had the head of the Sakya tradition, Sakya Trizin, visit and give a very intimate type of teaching and empowerment. So those are examples of teachers that have come of the highest caliber. But then within Finland itself, there are different organizations. You have the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana, for example. You have the mm -hmm. FPMT. And then I've received teachings, for example, with Tukudakpa Rinpoche. He's a Nyingma Tibetan Lama living here in Finland. So there are teachers that students or those who are just interested in Buddhism could find. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation to have. Uh, I mentioned at the very beginning, briefly, that you are an editor for the Kente Vision Project, uh, which translates and archives the massive corpus of works of 19th century Tibetan scholar, Zhongyang Kente Wangpo. And I've asked you to promise to come back when you're ready to talk about uh, your work with that project. So I'm really looking forward to welcoming you back to yet another episode uh, in the coming months. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Uh, that was, again, religious historian, scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, Dr. Albion Butters. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. Thank you. Listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.